Welcome to Dreaming in Color, a space for social change leaders of color to reflect on how their life experiences, personal and professional, have prepared them to lead and drive the impact we all seek. I'm your host, Darren Isom, and I invite you to join me in these candid kitchen table conversations, where together we celebrate these leaders' ingenuity, are inspired by their wisdom and wit, and learn how collectively we can all strive to do and be better. This is Dreaming in Color. Tima Robinson is the CEO and founder of Converge, a national social justice consulting firm whose purpose is to accelerate the creation of a radically just new world where communities of color thrive. With over 20 years of experience in strategic philanthropy, policy advocacy, and fundraising, Takima has built a company that supports some of the leaders in the social sector, with clients like the American Civil Liberties Union, the Ford Foundation, the Packard Foundation, Blue Meridian Partners, and Steven Spielberg's Heartland Foundation, representing over $100 billion in philanthropic investments worldwide. Since founding Converge in 2016, Takima has grown the firm's over $3.5 million in annual revenue and a team of 20 and growing. Takima is an advocate for Black women and radical self-care, wellness, and healing, which she practices daily through meditation, collage, watercolor painting, yoga, and watching the sunset on any beach in Jamaica, where she resides with her beloved family. Full disclosure, Takima and I have been friends since our days back at Howard. When we connect, I always feel transported to a sunny spot in front of Frederick Douglass Hall, out on the yard, because that's where all the best conversations happened. Hello, Takima. It's great to have you here. It's good to see you, friend. And so, as you know, I start offering you the floor for our invocation. Open us up, please. I reached back for this invocation, and I'm sure our conversation will illuminate why, but it comes from Todi Cade Bambara and the Salt Eaters. And it is actually the opening scene of the Salt Eaters, and I'm not sure if all the listeners have um, read it, so I'll set it up. It opens with a healer tending to a Black woman activist who has attempted suicide. And the irony is it occurs in the very space that Verna has created in service of community. And the quote is, are you sure, sweetheart, that you want to be well? Just so you are sure, sweetheart, and ready to be healed, because wholeness is no trifling matter. A lot of weight when you are well. Wholeness takes work. Listen, that is rich. (laughs) Uh, And you reached way back. Uh, And that is a perfect setup, actually, for the Opening question. So thank you. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But that was a wonderful invocation. Yes. You know, I was thinking back from a conversation with what I wanted to talk about with you. And I said in passing to my husband, oh, you know, I've known Takama since college, right? And you realize that was a long time ago. I'm that realizing was it was a while. time ago. Yeah. And so you start doing the math. I'm not going to call out the numbers because I'm not trying to age myself. So we've known each other since our days at Howard. Yes. I mean, Howard is a magical place in general, but we lived, we were at Howard at a very magical moment. Absolutely. Like, I mean, we were framed between... Coates and Bozeman, like it was a powerful time to be at Howard. And we can talk about that a little bit later as well. But you were a force then. You've remained a force in the best way possible. And it's truly been an honor and just a privilege really in some ways to see you cultivate this truly impressive career. But I would love just to start by just asking you if you've had that time to reflect how you feel you change with the evolving roles. Mm. And more importantly, how have each of your roles changed how you see yourself as a leader and a world builder? Oh, a leader and a world builder. You know, I've been on um, quite a journey. First of all, I was a political science major at, at Howard where we met, but I also double majored in art history. And so... Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Because of Howard's relationship with George Washington University, I was actually able to get a minor in curatorial studies while at wow. Georgetown. And then I stayed at Howard for my art history degree. 
And it was always the sort of essential question for me, whether I was working for Vernon Jordan, who I did work for in the middle of the Monica Lewinsky scandal, and that's a whole story in and of itself, or working on the Hill for Joe Lieberman, who was actually mentored by my grandmother, to studying art history. For me, the central question for me has always been about liberation and about freedom and about how we find it, whether it's through the political or the creative. And so I think that that has always been like the question in my heart that is woven through the many journeys that my career has taken from being a curator, an art educator, a founder of a public school and a school leader to um, an activist and now owning and starting Converge, which is a social justice consulting firm that I run. Wow. I'd like to think of your starting point as Howard, but you speak about your grandmother. And, you know, I think that we all have yeah. these rich family histories that we arrive at Howard with. Yeah. Uh, and those histories make us who we are to some degree. Can you talk a little bit more about your family background and how that's shaped who you are in your march towards liberation? Yeah. My grandmother, I always carry her with me. I find myself in many of the same rooms that she was in during her career. And I have that same feeling of this clearly is where... I'm supposed to be. There are these footsteps that have been left for me. There have been these sort of offerings that show me breadcrumbs showing me the way. And a lot of it has been her legacy. I'm proud to say that my family is pretty eclectic. My family, the Robinsons, have owned land in Massachusetts where they have a pretty large ranch in the Berkshires of Massachusetts and have owned that land, which was also an underground railroad stop since the late 1800s. And so there's a legacy there around land and, again, around Black people trying to find liberation, whether it was the Underground Railroad stop or whether it was my family, this Black family, who found themselves in the middle of the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts, which happened to be a town over from W.E. Du Bois. So in my imagination somewhere, our families knew each other. <laughs> oh, they did. Of course they did. Of course they did. At some social event, right? But I, I like to think about that and you know, that I come from a people who have constantly looked for and saw and built their legacy and my grandmother being one of them. She was the mother of four, including my father, who went on to be a world calf roping champion. And so I'm proud of that legacy as well, um, a legacy of a family who invested in the dreams. So we're talking about dreaming in color, right? Literally dreaming yep, in color. Yep. <laughs> How do you become a black cowboy? Because you come from a family that believes in investing in those dreams. And my grandmother was that person through her support and bringing my father's dream of being a Black cowboy to life, but also through her political work. And in prep for today, I actually picked up her resume. Oh, wow. And printed it out. And I hadn't looked at this in years. And it starts off with her community involvement on her resume. Starts wow. off with president of Ivy Street School parent teacher association and wow. darren it goes on to representative to the white house conference to fulfill their rights committee member to the governor's conference on human rights and opportunity member of the naacp member of the dixville congregational church board of directors national council of christians and jews board of directors of the new haven community foundation wow Let's see. It goes on to Alder Woman. So she was a city councilwoman um, in the 20th Ward where I grew up. And she was also the commissioner for equal opportunity in the state of Connecticut for 1964 to 1976. 
That's something to be very proud of. Absolutely. It also speaks to, I think, for so many of us, and I speak personally here as well as you know, that so many of the things that we are pursuing, it's part of a natural legacy. Absolutely. Right? Like this is literally what we've been groomed for to Absolutely. some degree. And not just groomed within our generation, but across multiple generations. And I think that's, I mean, going back to Howard, I mean, you arrive at Howard and it's like these legacies that have just been going on for such a long time. And a normalization of all these things. Of course, this is what we're going to, this is literally excellent. why we're here. Black this, excellence. This is, yeah, that's really powerful. So thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah. And I love your grandma's story. And we should talk grandmas because these grandmas were out here doing a thing. They right? were. Their stories have just not been told enough. And I'm grateful that they live through us. Part of my journey as a leader has been learning those stories and learning the lessons from their leadership, which, you know, take me back to that invocation that have a lot to do with wellness and what it means to be well, even as we build beloved community, even as we build you know, the lifelines for those of us who are in our communities. Part of our leadership journey is learning how, you know, to birth that own liberation for ourselves, to actually be the recipients of our own labor. That's a perfect transition and a story that I did not think about sharing, but it comes to mind for me. I remember heading off to Howard and coming back to New Orleans. Uh, and of course, my grandmother being my grandmother invited our church pastor to dinner. And he asked me what sermons that I remember from growing up. There are two that I remember. I'll share the second one at another point. But the one that I remember mostly was he gave a whole sermon on the Bible's instruction to love thy neighbor as thyself. Mm. Um, and he always talked about in the sermon, he mentioned how we missed the important part of that commandment, which is loving yourself. Absolutely. Uh, and what does it mean to love yourself as an act of liberation and to model self-love as you think about loving others? Your work is so much about advocating for radical self-care absolutely, uh, and really striving to prioritize the practice in your life as a model for others. I would love for you to just talk about what is radical self-care? I know it sounds silly to ask. And why is it important? Radical self-care, I think, is a revolutionary act specifically as a BIPOC person, as a Black person, as a queer person, as a person of color, um, as a woman, to decide to love yourself and to do that deeply. I think it is the human journey to come to self-discovery and to understand self-love, but there's a particular journey when I think it is people of color, it is women, it is LGBTQ folks. And so for me, you know, at the core of that question about what is liberation, I think what I have found that the answer is there in radical self-care. It is the journey to loving myself despite, you know, systemic oppression, despite circumstances. It is a decision and a stance um, to affirm my own humanity and to love on myself. And I think, again, it goes back to why I've held on to that quote, because it's also a choice and it's a powerful choice. Mm. And I think the way that capitalism, systemic oppression is set up is we are supposed to believe that it's not available to us. Right. Mm. It is why, you know, one of my favorite characters of, of all is Dominique Devereaux from Dynasty. Right. Like the epitome of you will put some respect on my name. And I will enjoy this luxury and this liberation and I will be seen and I will be heard and I will love myself and I will protect myself and I will be my own savior and I will create my own liberation. 
And that's been a big journey for me, you know, and I think in not I think I should know because it's my son's birthday. But I think some folks know and I've shared pretty openly my story, particularly my birthing story of my second son, August. And so this sort of journey around self-care, radical self-care was a slogan I had (laughs) before that. And then life happened like it does to many Black women. My son, who is now nine, um, was born in 2013 at a pound and Mm -hmm. 11 ounces. And Darren, that's when, you know, that became less of a slogan for me and really Mm -hmm. a calling, a calling in to save my own life, to save my son's life. And it really reinvigorated how I approached life. Um, Out of Mm -hmm. that, I birthed Converge and really felt purpose behind our mission to create a radically just new world where communities of color thrive and where I had to get really real about this question about radical self-care, no longer sort of a notion or a tagline, but it had to become a way of life. And I've been on a journey and it keeps iterating. Um, It has included my physical health. It's included my mental health. And eventually it included me leaving the United States and being an expat now located in Jamaica. So it's a continual journey. Um, I'm right now, I'm on sabbatical. And I will have to say, I I have not, not worked since I was 14 years old. Wow. And I am 46. And these three months represent, other than, you know, when I had my son and was out for maternity leave, this represents the first time where I get to intentionally rest and recover. So it is a constant journey for me, radical self-care. Which is humbling. I also just want to call out your son. How much did he weigh, you said? August, Kamal, Madiba, Bradbury was a pound and 11 ounces. And a pound 11 ounces. And you named him August. I mean, that is basically you named him to fight. You already um, know August Wilson yeah. and Augustus <laughs> means his majesty. So we crowned him accordingly. Wonderful. I want to just double click a little bit on that. You talked about this idea. I mean, you defined it. You've made it very clear why it's important. And I think you've also modeled it in the work that you've developed and organizations you've started. I would love to get your thoughts on how the sector collectively can promote and champion self-care, especially for leaders of color. What does that look like? I want to give folks a lot of credit for struggling with this question because, you know, I think this is one we are all evolving into. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to say I have it perfect or we figured it out at Converge. And so we are really continuing to iterate. For the record, I just want to note that we are all making it up as we go. We are all making this up. So some of what I've seen is, you know, just creating more space for people's humanity, you know, and really allowing Mm -hmm. that to come through in our organizations. I think COVID was a calling in to all of us around humanity. I think it forced us to figure out how to be more flexible, how to be more understanding and more empathetic, more compassion. Um, And so I think, you know, it sounds corny, but love, you know, bringing this idea of love into the work, into our leadership, into our organizations is key to creating space because people have to feel like they have permission to take care of themselves. I know a lot of organizations, including my own, have unlimited PTO and we talk about self-care. Well, we talk about a lot of things like you know, we don't like systemic equality and then we do other things, right? So we talk things that we don't do. And so we have to model it. And I appreciate you talking about me modeling it, but it's been critical because unless I do, my staff, my organization won't take that seriously. And so I have to live it. I can't just talk it. 
And I'm constantly digging deep to figure out what else that looks like. So compassion and bringing that, infusing that into the work, I think is definitely where folks begin to create space, but also making sure that leaders are modeling it because you can't say it and not demonstrate it. People have to know it's real. So if you are sending emails at 4 a.m. in the morning, right, you are setting the tone for what is expected of folks. If you are not taking time off, if you are leaving time on the table for PTO in your organization as a leader, you are not modeling to folks that they have permission to really take care of themselves. So I would say both the compassion and love as well as the modeling have to be at least the beginning of the conversation about how we do it. And also, I mean, I'd love for you to talk a little bit, because I think this is something that I just feel like my squad in general, we do fairly fairly well, so just called it out. I think that there's something to be said about how do you normalize your existence as being a wonderful, beautiful thing. And I know this sounds like such a silly thing, and, and I know we're in a world where we celebrate a little bit too much, but I've joked with Rhonda before, and maybe even on the podcast, about how, you know, when I was in Memphis, and folks were just so impressed that I was like, out right? Like you're out, you got, you talking about your husband. It's like, I mean, what else? Look, I, what am I going to, I'm going to hide, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, what, why would I hide that? Yeah. Right. And you don't realize how many young people came to me and they were just so excited to see someone who'd embrace Absolutely. their identity. And I had never thought about it before. Right. Like yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I, I totally, you know, I embrace Quakerism in a sense. There's a little bit of God in all of us. Yeah. And, you know, I'm all about celebrating that God. Yeah. Right. And there's some godly things. And so I would love for you just to chat a little bit about like how in your identity, how in your affirmation from a life perspective, there's so many things that we just do naturally that we don't realize how radical they are in the grand scheme of things. We don't. We're just sort of trying to live the truth. And for me, find my liberation and just, you know, often just doing it out loud. It takes a lot of courage. I think there are a lot of things about us, our generation. You know, you and I joke all the time about what it means to be Black Gen X. Right. To sort of sit between these two generations and a little bit of baby boomers and a little bit of millennial. Yeah. I mean, we talk about in many ways being an in-between generation, but not only are we connected to baby boomers, we're also raised by our grandparents. Yeah. So we have another generational connection. Yeah. That and I would argue don't I mean, don't tell my mother this, but probably raised more by my grandmothers than my mother. My mother was working. Right. A village, a village of aunties and grandmothers and great aunties. Yeah. What you're speaking to and I would love just more thoughts on is. How do we encourage folks to stay showing up for themselves and living their truths and and showing up for themselves, even while they're operating in roles that often require them to pour so much into others? And so how do you get people to prioritize themselves? And what does that look like for you? I think the other thing that you were speaking to earlier, just asking me to illuminate, is we give other people permission to do the same, right? When we live our truth or we live into our own freedom and our own liberation, we give other folks the permission to do the same. I mean, the truth is like, I listen, I don't know how to do anything else but be my full self. You know, at this point, you and I are constantly having those things. We're like, listen. <laughs> and I think, you know, some of the th- choices that I've made, both in, in leadership, have not always been co-signed by, you know, my mentors. But I think it is thinking about those folks who are looking at me and the changes that do need to be made, the hard truths that need to be told about how previous generations have worked, the inhumanity of how we have worked in the past. Um, And yeah, the courage to say, I'm going to live my truth. I'm going to share my life 
I'm going to share my full self. I'm going to show up in these Jordans for this meeting because my feet hurt. Um, I'm going to wear these locks. I'm going to wear these big earrings and bright lipstick. And I'm going to grace y'all with all this amazingness. And you are lucky. And you are lucky to get it. I'm going to show up and show off. you are lucky. I finally got comfortable in that space. And I think it was through the revelation of like, what y'all need is all of this, right? Like you need this because this is something, this person, this Black woman, this Black leader, this Black life, this Black experience, this Black expertise and excellence is what's been missing from this conversation. Um, And I think it's just over time standing in the confidence that I have something to offer that's unique and I have a place at the table and and owning it. But that takes time. I do hope our examples, because it's not just me, it's you. It's a gang of folks. I'm glad you lifted up Rhonda. She's one of those folks too. I think showing folks that they can be their full selves in this work and they don't have to feel guilty about enjoying themselves loving on themselves, their self-care, because truly that is actually what we need you to do. We need you to fortify yourself, to sustain yourself, to love on yourself, to be in this work with us. So, you know, I get it right. I get it wrong. But I am trying to at least be honest about what the journey towards my own liberation is. 100%. My mother's favorite quote, if you love me, take care of yourself. I need you around. If you love me, take care of yourself. My mother says it all the time. You've talked on this a little bit, but I'd love to give you a little bit more space uh, as I go into the next area of questioning, if you will, around this radically just new world. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about how your identity as a mother has contributed to your vision for the future that we're trying to create. Wow. I'll say this. I know, right? Easy question. (laughs) Being a mom. And so since I called out August, I also am a mother to another son who is 11 years old, Kingston Toussaint. Bradbury. So speaking to my Haitian ancestry there, raising Kingston in August has been a journey. But I think being a mother grounds you in in a way that, um, you know, I never was grounded before. It tethers you to the care and shaping of these human beings. But it it has also made me think a lot more about the future and about legacy. Mm. It's made me think a lot more about where I sit in that trajectory of my ancestors as well as future generations and being able to sort of, you know, be directly responsible for the next generation, the next iteration and the world they grow into. And so, I mean, I think we hear a lot of people talk about having children and how it really does bring into focus our responsibility to hand the world to them. Um, And so I think a lot about that. And it's, I can tell you, Darren, like it is it is not an easy thing to be a mother and be a black mother in this moment when the world is changing so much. I'm not always sure what world I'm raising them to live in. You know, so many things are changing. I love being a mother. It is the joy of my life. And I think without it, I wouldn't have the grounding and also the vision that I have. It definitely has put everything into much bigger perspective. Well, I do wonder as well if, and I, you know, I tease y'all all all the time out here having kids and the world's not, (laughs) the world's looking precarious as hell. And so it's a level of optimism. It's a level of optimism to have a child because things ain't looking good, right? And so I wonder if there's almost a, I wouldn't say a forced optimism because there's no such thing, but if there's a need in some ways to be thinking about 
the future uh, because you're thinking about the world that you're shaping for your kids to live into or preparing them to live into and lead into. You know, and I'm also thinking about somebody got to raise some good black men for the next generation. Listen, and we do a horrible job of raising men in general as a culture. Yeah. So I think about that as the assignment as well. And it's it's a ball around here. So they're probably outside skateboarding somewhere. I know that's right. Well, make sure they stay safe out there. Are you in Jamaica now? Yeah, we're in Jamaica. They're out in the garden. I want to spend some time talking about Jamaica as well at some point, because why not? But I do want to just uh, talk a little bit more about that radically just new world Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, you really center a lot of your work around and wondering what does it look like to achieve radical justice for communities of color? What does it look like? What are we trying to build? What are we trying to create? And I ask that question while you think about it, because I think that as I think about my tenure, professionally. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know how you're 46 because we went to college together and I'm only 36. But uh, <laughs> Right, ah! exactly. I'm sorry. But, 36 to 36. But I think that earlier in my years, power came from critiquing, mm-hmm. right? Pulling things apart, mm-hmm. right? And then at some point, like the flex became creating, Absolutely. right? Like literally that table that you've been criticizing for so long, you're sitting at it. And that table doesn't need your critique. That table needs you to say what it should look like, right? And so I want to give you the opportunity to flex, which is the flex of saying what we're trying to build, what we're trying to create. What does that future look like? So when I think about a radically just new world, I mean, I think we're talking about a world where systemic oppression no longer exists, where these sort of... (laughs) false of uh, categories of of people, you know, determine life outcomes. I think that is yeah, a and folks can't see at home that I totally shrugged <laughs> and, uh, like, ooh, how radical, right? That is a just new world. I don't, you know, I don't know if it's more clearer than that, right? Like, but ultimately it is where our, our humanity is honored. I also think it's it's a world where folks don't have to suffer for survival. Um, I don't think we talk enough about the unnecessary suffering of folks, Um, Mm. particularly, you know, as much as we talk about race, I think we need to talk about capitalism and what that does to all of us. Um, Mm. And in many ways, it sort of reinforces um, racism. And I think that does something to all of us to have to be put into such a situation where we have to survive for every meal um, in a world as abundant or in a country like America, which is financially abundant, um, to me, a radically just new world is not a world where we have to do that. Um, someone posted the other day, I want to say it was something from the early 1900s, which predicted in 2023, right, we no longer be working a 40-hour work week. Um, and lo mm-hmm. and behold, you know, Americans are averaging 50 and 60 hours still. Um, And so to me, you know, a radically just new world requires a vast imagination. And I am so excited to live at a time where people are interrogating that and interrogating all of it, whether it is the conversations around gender or the conversations around borders, um, Mm. the conversation around race or the conversation around kind of how democracy is structured or the impact of capitalism. So I think we're at a really profound time when folks are beginning to tap into their imagination to sort of draw, like, it's not just what we don't want, to your point, it's what do we want. And so I know what we don't want. 
I think we now need to do the work of accessing our imagination to really create what we want. 100%. Remember Dr. Thornton at Howard? <laughs> yeah. Um, and yes. so was my advisor for me. He was just a brilliant <laughs> Howard professor who had both the cynicism and optimism that comes with being a, a wise Howard professor. I don't know if it was a class or if it was a honors program, something or another. He said that America's founding documents were perfect. When they said that all men were created equal, we just spent our country's history deciding who is a man. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, sits with me often. Uh, so we we have a very clear sense of what liberation looks like for a specific group of people. Right. The question is, how do we expand that sense of liberation to include all of us from, you know, from a race perspective, from a sexual identity, sexual orientation perspective? Immigrants, children, are they men that are all created equal as well? Right. right? And so how do we expand that definition with as powerful? So I, I do think that requires some reimagining, but also requires us to look at what's here already and how do we celebrate that? And right? it's not just a civil rights struggle, right? We're talking about a major culture shift, you mm. know, so we can pass the policies, but we still have to change hearts and minds to create yeah. a radically just new world, right? And the way in which we've internalized this mess, it is hard to access our imagination to know what we want, not just what we don't want. 100%. The, this idea that ultimately there are two types of wins, right? The policy wins and then there are the kitchen table wins, mm -hmm. right? Um, and you have to have the kitchen table wins to sustain the policy wins. At the same time, you have to have the kitchen table wins that allow those policy wins to even happen, mm -hmm. right? So I think that there's a, there's a kitchen table conversation that requires some reimagining of how we think about these things and how we live into those things. I do want to get your thoughts. I mean, we've lived through, and if I stop and think about it, I was watching uh, the Pelosi documentary. Mm -hmm. A few days ago, first of all, Pelosi's badass. I'll leave it at that. California, you know how California does. Also, shout out to Baltimore, right? But as part of that, we were walking through both the Trump years followed by COVID years, which we're still kind of living through. And we had a civil rights movement, right? Smack dab in the middle of it that I hope we start to talk about at some point, right? The narrative has shifted yeah. in a way. And so I would love for you just to maybe chat about, I mean, clearly there's lots of work to do. Any positive signs? that you've observed in recent years that, that show we're currently moving in this direction towards a radically just new world? Yes, yes. Give us a hope lifeline, please. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I absolutely have hope. And, you know, I remind myself, I remind the folks I work with that they said it was a long arc, right? But I also believe that that North Star is on the horizon. And mm -hmm. um, I believe that because of these coming generations. I believe it because of the young people, the millennials who are pushing my thinking, the Gen Xers who are pushing their thinking, and my children and their friends who are growing up completely different than we are, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, they're not going to have the same level even psychologically in terms of limiting beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was working with some of the organizations in Georgia around the, the midterm elections, and it was always interesting to watch the numbers every week on the number of folks eligible to be registered to vote. And just thinking mm -hmm. about the fact that every single day, this country is getting younger, it's getting blacker, it's getting more female and more queer. That mm. is the hope on the horizon. <laughs> the starting point is just different. And not to say that, you know, demography will eliminate these issues, but it changes the conversation. Um, yeah. And I think that young people are 
you know, in the same way every generation has done, they are really advancing this conversation. And I think that plus technology is expediting this change, right? It is exponential. And so to me, Mm. that's where the hope is, not necessarily in technology, but in young people, how they're using the technology and how that has the power to do, you know, culture change. I mean, just think about it wasn't just the pandemic, but we also, you know, experienced a civil rights struggle, but also a international, a global human rights struggle where one country was instigating another. And so we see how that can work in the positive, you know, what we saw happen all across the country, you know, as we were experiencing those flare ups here. But we also see how that can happen in the obverse. Think about Brazil. You know, those are some of the things that I think about when I think about hope. And some of the things maybe because you asked me about being a mother, I don't feel like I have an option but to look for (laughs) uh, for that optimism. But I believe it's there. It is there. Yeah. Well, I think it also speaks to from a generational shift perspective as well is like this whole idea of risk and what risk look like. Right. From, uh, you know, within the work, within philanthropy, within social justice work, defining risk. I would love to just get a sense in your mind is what is at stake when social change leaders and philanthropists do not take risk for radical justice. Like we have to redefine this language around risk, right? Because first of all, I don't know what's at risk, right? Like we have this bar around risk that's unrealistic. And so, you know, what's at stake when we don't necessarily think about taking those risks from a radical justice perspective? And how do we normalize that for others? What's at risk is the status quo. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? What, <laughs> and the status what, quo ain't working. What's yeah. at risk is more of the same. I mean, I think the irony of, you know, even taking my grandmother's resume out to read it is what she was working on the same damn thing. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And we have come at this so many different ways. You know, we can't engineer change. We can't socially engineer it. We have to be about it. We have to do it. And so, you know, if we're not willing to take risk, then we're settling for the same. Um, And to be honest, I don't think philanthropy has always been benevolent in its investments or in its risk management profiling. Um, And Hmm. so to (laughs) me, there is, you know, we have to go back to sort of why was philanthropy started and who was started by and what is it really up to? You know, it begs those questions when we're really not interested in investing our money where we know we need to do so. You know, there also comes, and we've had this conversation quite a bit, a lot of paternalism around who gets to decide what that risk profile is, who's the judge and the who creates the criteria, most of which is riddled with all, right, the sort of racism and systemic issues that we've talked about. How can philanthropists make space for Black women and women of color to assume leadership roles and to form their practices as philanthropists? And I ask this question because we've had a bit of a movement within the country in which we, you know, Black leaders matter. We've given, we've handed folks some leadership roles. At the same time, however, we have also handed Black women keys to condemned houses mm. uh, with expectations of their fixing it mm. all, mm-hmm. right? Um, from Supreme Court this is a tire. to cities. <laughs> <laughs> to it is, I mean, we're, here's your key. What, what are you handing me a key to? And I'm, what, am I, what are the yeah. expectations? What's philanthropy's role in setting people up for success uh, as it relates to carrying out this work in a way that's meaningful and powerful? I don't know where I said this a long time ago, but this is floated out there. Would we have asked Rosa Parks to submit a grant application? Right. And imagine if she was still 
if she had done so, was still waiting to hear back from philanthropy about whether or not they could move on the Montgomery bus boycott. And so I think we have to trust Black women. And again, that is not a slogan. It is about creating space for their leadership. It is affirming that their expertise, their excellence, their experience is what's needed uniquely in leadership. It is recognizing that our preparation is not just in the universities that we attended, but we've been prepped since, you know, junior usher board. And since we was going to church with our grandmother about how you roll up on a community, how you have conversations, how you know who is who, what is what, um, and how you translate the needs of community into action. And so I think that particular expertise of experience needs to be affirmed and there needs to be space created for it. And I think just like what you said in the prep, fund us like you want us to win. Right. Mm. Then support us like you want us to win. Make sure we have the resources and then some because, you know, our leadership may require overcoming some things that other folks leadership does not. So Mm. I think it is imperative to recognize the unique qualities that black women bring to this work and to see and affirm those as incredible assets and to make sure that we are given the resources to really do the job you're asking us to do. I've had this conversation with many a sister who's been in that place and gotten those phone calls and gotten those offers. But we also have to be careful when we accept them. Um, hmm. that we are are making it clear what our worth is, but also what we need. And there is what we need in terms of carrying out the task, but what we also need is a support system and we also need um, coaching and we also need support for our leadership. And so making sure that is also part of what organizations are looking at when they support Black women leaders. 100%. I do have a question for you. And one of the things that's really been on my mind, and they're both big jazz fans. And so uh, Duke Ellington, one of my favorite pieces by his is The Three Black Kings. It's a beautiful piece. I, I knew my grandfather was a big jazz hit and I knew it as a child. Yeah, I listened to growing up. Alvin Ailey dances to mm. the piece. And I didn't learn until only recently, maybe about a year or so ago, that the piece, which is possibly Ellington's best composition, he actually dictated from his deathbed. He never heard the piece performed as he was dying. He dictated the piece to his son who scribed the piece and produced his piece, the piece after his death. And I mean, that story is just beautiful to me for a number of different reasons. One, Duke Ellington is a damn genius because the piece is a genius. And I can imagine him humming it as he's dictating it out loud. But also reminds me that so much of our work as leaders of color in the space is about putting out ideas that we know we will never see come to fruition. Yeah. Uh, there's something beautiful that we're throwing out into the world in hopes that future generations can grab. And there's been so much talk about as we read now Octavia Butler, like where she was giving us instructions, Shell, right? Yeah, she was. Leaving those breadcrumbs. Right. And so I would love to close by asking you, what instructions are you hoping to dictate, if you will, in your work that future generations will pick up and live with and run with and make sense of? That may not happen in the next 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, but may not be relevant for a while. Anything come to mind? I mean, I hope the lesson of my life is that self-love and self-care is really what this time on earth is about, right? Is learning to love ourselves deeply. And what I want to leave for those who choose social change as a vocation 
or as a career is it is required of you if you're going to do this work. You cannot love the people unless you love yourself. And so I hope my legacy is one of being a legacy builder um, and one who saw her own liberation um, and the liberation of her people. And that's a wonderful way to close. Thank you for that. I'm just reminded of all of us as we carry out this work, just a Thomas Paine quote that the times have found us, right? Here we are. This, this is the times that we were created for mm-hmm. uh, and let us live into them and make the most of them. Thank you, friend. This is beautiful. Um, it's very restorative for me. Hopefully it was healing for you as well. Thank and you. I look forward to seeing you out in those streets. I, on these sabbatical streets for the next two and a half months. Well, yeah, yeah I don't, I don't, I'm not going <laughs> to see you on any streets in the next few months. I'll see you on the streets post sabbatical. I'll be on the beach. I love you, friend. Love you too. Season one of Dreaming in Color started with a conversation with my friend and mentor, Rishi Vade, a mentor whose wisdom, optimism, and faith through action shaped so many of us, giving us both a sense of belonging and purpose in this beautiful struggle. Rishi co-founded the Donors of Color Network, and although she couldn't attend their annual event in New Mexico in spring of last year, a few months before her death, she closed out the event by speaking by Zoom at the final session. And as she looked out at this group of BIPOC philanthropic leaders, We've been together for over two days, discussing the fate of the world and mapping out our path forward. It was obvious that we were all a bit weary and dispirited. The world's an absolute mess right now, and any conversation on making wrong right is a laborious one, even for the brilliant minds there assembled. I know the world feels overwhelming right now, she told us, and it's easy to feel dispirited, but I want you all to know that we are winning. This is what winning looks like. Winning looks like chaos when you're uprooting broken systems and creating new ones. Keep pushing and look around the room. This is what a winning team looks like. I hold on to those words as a call, and it is probably why I've told this story so many times over the past year. I tell this story any chance I get. There's a Haitian Creole proverb I learned many years ago working in Miami the summer after my junior year of high school. Deemon, Ginmon. Beyond the mountain, more mountains. An expression that despite its Sisyphean like cynicism, actually has a joyful celebratory connotation. This is only after making it to the top of one mountain that you can break from climbing to see the mountains to come. Celebrate the path ahead and ready to continue the journey. The road to victory is only visible from the mountaintop. And as I spoke with Takima, who was just starting a long-earned sabbatical, sitting in her home perched on a hill in Jamaica, speaking of her family's long legacy of activism, I was reminded that our success as a community is a multi-generational journey, a long-distance run where the quality of the rest is just as important as the quality of the sprint, where radical self-care is critical to both endurance and performance. In her poem, Fire, Judy Brown tells us of the importance of space in building fires. What makes a fire burn is space between the logs, a breathing space. Too much of a good thing, too many logs packed in too tightly can douse the flames, almost as surely as a pail of water would. So building fires requires attention to the spaces in between, as much as to the wood. When we're able to build open spaces in the same way we have learned to pile on the logs, then we can come to see how it is fuel, and the absence of fuel together, that make fire possible. Whereas my mother often closes out our phone calls, Remember, hot fires burn quickly, dear. If you love me, please take care of yourself. It is only fitting that I close out season two with Urchie's words from the conversation that opened season one. Those of us who are running towards liberation, towards a vision of a different social and economic order, we are one team, running our relay race together, handing the baton back and forth to each other all the time. It's in our collective that we find our strength and our purpose. It's in our collective that the race is won. Here's that beautiful collective, the path ahead, and to victory. Here's to creating space for that fire to burn. Onward.
Well, y'all, that's a wrap. And while the episode is finished, the work continues. Thank you for tuning in and listening generously to Dreaming in Color, a Bridgman supported Studio Pop Media production. Special shout outs to our wonderful show producers, Teresa Buchanan and Denise Savas. Our video editors, Dave Clark McCoy, Diana Radaelli, and Alejandro Ramirez. Our graphic designer, Diana Jimenez, and our show coordinator, Nicole Genova. And a huge shout out to our ever brilliant Bridgeband production team and family, Cora Daniels, Jasmine Relaford, Ami Diane, Christina Pistorius, and Ryan Winsel. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Talk soon.